If you have your Bibles, want to turn with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. Uh, we're going to read verses 29 to 33, and then 1 Kings 17.1. And uh, you can keep your Bibles there in 1 Kings, because we're going to be going back there and kind of working our way through uh, a, a good portion of, of the book and trying to set some some background information, but for this morning, 1 Kings 16, starting with verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidon, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now verse, chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to worship you and to sing praises to your name and to open up your word and read of your truth. We're thankful that you've given us your word that we may know your truth, we may know your commands, we may know your heartbeat. And Lord, we pray that as we look at it this morning, that your truth might infiltrate our hearts and change our hearts to be more like you. Father, we're thankful that we can gather here this morning as a family and sing praises to you and, and remember you in communion and, and open up your word. But Lord, we're also aware that in and of our family there are many who aren't here with us this morning. Many who are going through difficult times of sickness and can't be with us. And Lord, we pray that you would minister to them today, that you would draw close to them and comfort them and wrap your arms of love around them and, and be near to them, that your presence might be real in their lives and that they might feel your encouragement and your love for them. Lord, we're thankful that as your family, that you've given us many gifts and abilities that we can use to serve you. And this morning, Father, I'm thankful for the many, many, many individuals in our family who use those gifts and abilities in ministry here at Mount Calvary Church. We're thankful for the countless hours that they invest in the lives of adults and children and teenagers in communicating your truth and, and, and loving them with your love. And Lord, we just thank you for their servants' hearts. We thank you for their willingness to serve and their willingness to give of themselves. And Lord, we pray that you might bless them for that. Father, we're, we're, we're thankful that we can pause in the midst of our crazy schedules this morning and meet with you. Father, you've told us that where two or three are gathered, you're here with us. And Lord, we, we know that and we're, we welcome that and we're thankful that we get to meet with you this morning. And Lord, it's my prayer that as we meet with you this morning, that my words might be your words. 
that you might communicate to us through your heart and challenge us and, and mold and shape us into the individuals that you desire us to be. That we might have a desire not to live for ourselves and for our name, but to live for you and, and your fame. And Lord, I pray that, uh, that, that, that you would just give us a great time as we look to your word for, for direction for our lives this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. For the next few months, we're going to be doing a, a series on Elijah, and uh, hopefully you'll join with us for, uh, I think, maybe 10 weeks. Uh, we'll be walking through the life of Elijah and, and looking at what was so significant about him. And this morning, I get to kick it off. Uh, Pastor Dick is away this morning. Uh, I told him that I would tell you that he was at the Super Bowl, so you could watch for him the, the, this evening uh, when you watch the game. But uh, he actually has the privilege of going back to his home church. His home church has sent out uh, 10 individuals into ministry, 10 men into ministry that are preachers. And uh, they've had all 10 of those guys back to preach in their home church, and he was the last guy. So uh, he is there this morning uh, having the opportunity and the privilege to preach in the church that he grew up in. And so... Uh, so he, he is there this morning. So I get the privilege uh, to introduce Elijah to you and kind of kick off this series. And, and we're going to be looking at a lot of background information of, of kind of wh where Israel was when Elijah came onto the scene. But before we do that, uh, uh, the title of this message is We Need a Hero. And I don't know about you, but if you look around our world today, it's, it's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? And, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, we, we do need a hero. Uh, you know, we need some heroes. And, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, I bet you have heroes. Who's your hero? Think about that. Well, maybe when you were growing up, did you have a hero? Or maybe, you know, maybe there's someone now that you look up to. And as I was thinking about my own life, I was thinking about this fall and this winter, I got a new hero. His name was Tim Tebow. And uh, it was Tebow time in my house because I enjoyed watching Tim Tebow. And you know what I enjoyed about Tim Tebow? It wasn't the fact that he uh, was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos, that God had blessed him with, with some athletic ability, that he came in and turned the Broncos' season around and, and led them to the playoffs. You know what I appreciate about Tim Tebow and why he was my hero? Because in the midst of all of that, his testimony for Jesus Christ was loud and clear. In whatever success that he had, he lived out that testimony for Jesus Christ in a real practical way. And you know what? It was catching on. And the people uh, who covered him, who even weren't believers, they said, you know what? There's something different about Tim Tebow. He walks what he talks. Tim Tebow became my hero. And, and, I, and I'm a huge Tim Tebow fan. And as I was uh, getting ready this week for this message, uh, Thursday came rolling around, and, and I, I picked up a book Kisses from Katie. And Thursday night, uh, after dinner, I sat down to start reading this book, and at 1 a.m. I finished it. And I got a new hero. Her name's Katie Davis. I want you to watch a little video about Katie and, and, and see why she's my new hero. I want to ask you to come with me on a journey. A journey that started three years ago when I thought I knew what my life would look like. And I had no idea. 
a journey that has shown me more about the Father's heart and his extravagant compassion than I could have ever imagined. A journey that requires me to give more of myself every single day. It's a journey that took me from a 10-month commitment to teach kindergarten in Uganda to a lifetime commitment of bettering and serving this country. I'm Katie Davis. I'm 21 years old and I live here in Uganda. I run Amazima Ministries and my full-time occupation is that I'm a mom to 14 little girls. From an early age, people would always ask me, you know, you'd have like career day, what do you want to be when you grow up type thing. And I had always said I wanted to be Mother Teresa just because I, I guess I just loved her heart for children. It is my 16th birthday and I'm eating sushi at my favorite restaurant when I tell my parents that I'd like to explore the possibility of doing mission work out of high school. I graduate high school having made a commitment to teach at a preschool for a year in the middle of nowhere, Uganda. My parents were so not on board, but you know, it came to a point where it was like, okay, God said, you choose me or you choose to please your dad. And uh, what is, what's it going to be? And I said, all right, I'm going back. It is January and I'm looking at a little girl crushed under a brick wall with no one to take care of her and her siblings. I offer to take them home with me until we find a better solution. I'm not really sure what to do with them, but I know that they are God's children. They stay. It is three days later, and the littlest one looks up and she calls me mommy. My heart breaks in two. I have no idea what to do, but something clicks. I'm even more scared than the day that I stepped on that plane, but I know that this is right. Today I have 14. I get a lot of that, like, do you really feel that they're your children? Do you really feel like it's a family? And I say, you come on over for dinner and tell me, because um, it is. It is our family. People say to me all the time, like, wow, you are so lucky that you found what God wants you to do with your life. And I kind of look at those people and think, like, well, I didn't. I didn't find it. It was just it was just in the Bible. And so as someone who calls themselves a Christian, I mean, it's very apparent that you are to love the Lord with all your heart and then you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And like myself doesn't want to be starving. And so I don't want other people in the world to be starving. Jesus does not ask that we care for the less fortunate. He demands it. When calling ourselves Christ followers, caring for orphans and the desolate and the widow are not an option. It's a requirement. I would like to invite you to come with me on this journey that is so far from over and see what God will do next. Katie Davis is an amazing young lady. I'm not a reader. I mean, I don't read for enjoyment, and the fact that I read a book in six hours is quite amazing, but I couldn't put it down. And I encourage you that if you're a reader, uh, pick up the book Kisses from Katie. It's an amazing, amazing story of a young lady. And I don't know if you've heard uh, what she said. It's a story of a typical high school senior, but there's nothing typical about her. Homecoming queen, class president, popular, had lots of friends, lived in an affluent area, and she gave it all up. 
to go to Uganda. And there felt God calling her to stay. And the process became a mother to 14 girls at the age of, she's 22 now, she's got 14 girls. She runs a ministry that feeds 400 kids and pays for them to go to school. She feeds them, she pays for them to go to school, she provides for them a place every day that they can come and get clean so they don't get sick. She's an amazing, amazing young lady. And if you read her book, the thing that amazes me the most about Katie Davis is she'll tell you she's not amazing. She'll tell you there's nothing special about her. There's nothing special about her. It's a story of a young lady who thinks that she's an ordinary girl simply obeying an extraordinary God. You know what? We need more heroes in our world like Katie Davis. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with Elijah? What does that have to do with Elijah? Well, you know what? In Elijah's day, Israel was in need of a hero. Israel was in need of some people like Katie Davis, some ordinary people that were willing to say, you know what, I serve an extraordinary God, and I'm going to follow what he tells me to do. And so I just want to take you and just kind of give you a whirlwind trip through uh, the time period that Elijah lived. And I call it the days of Elijah. Because when you study the lives of individuals, you've got to study history. You have to know the history and the time that they lived in because you get the significance about the individuals. Charles Swindoll says this, you can't separate people from the context of their times because the steel of inner character is hammered out on the anvil of time and forged in the context of history. I like that statement. You can't understand and appreciate a person unless you know the time period in their living, that they're living. And for this reason, it's vital we understand, it's vital we understand uh, the difficult time that, that Elijah was living in, the difficult time in Israel, and, and what was happening there. And so let's look at some background information of Israel. For well over a hundred years, the Israelites had three kings. You know them, Saul, David, and Solomon. For over a hundred years, Saul, David, and Solomon ruled Israel. They were strong, they were successful, and they were famous men. But you know what? Even in the midst of their success, they were not perfect. Their men, they, they were men that had failure and men who sinned. But you know what? God, God enabled Israel to have a hundred years with these three kings. And, and, and for the most part, especially David and Solomon, they followed after God. And it was a pretty good time in Israel. Things were going well. Uh, it was a great time to live there. Then at the end of King Solomon's life, Civil war broke out in Israel, and the result was the land was divided into two. The northern kingdom, or Israel, which was ruled by Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom, Judah, which was led by Rehoboam. This division lasted until they were both conquered by foreign nations, and the Jews were led away into captivity. In the period of 200 years from when the land was divided until Israel's captivity, the northern kingdom was under the leadership of 17 rulers, excuse me, 19 rulers, and all of those were wicked, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It was a dark day in Israel, and this environment of evil lasted until the Assyrians invaded in 722 B.C. So the, for, for 100 years, three kings ruled Israel. 
And then after that, for those 300 years, 19 kings ruled. They were all evil. They all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In a period of over 300 years from the division of the land until Judah's captivity, the southern kingdom was under the leadership of 17 rulers. Eight of those monarchs followed the Lord their God, but nine of them were wicked men who didn't serve or walk with God. The environment of evil ended in Judah with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and the 70-year Babylonian captivity. That gives a little bit of an idea of what it was like in Israel and Judah at this time of of Elijah. And we're specifically going to focus on Israel because uh, Elijah was a prophet to Israel. And and we're just going to walk through some of these kings. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going we're to start in 1 Kings 13, and we're going to kind of go through the list of kings, and, and just to kind of point out, again, what kind of time frame is Elijah living in? It's kind of a bleak time, time frame. And the first king is Jeroboam. He's the first king over the northern kingdom, or Israel. And in 1 Kings 13, 33 and 34, it says this, Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. But once more he appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. Anyone who wanted to become a priest, he consecrated for the high places. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. And here in this verse we see the term high places. And it's, it's a term used to, to, to refer to pagan altars, uh, used for the worship of pagan gods and idols. And we see Jeroboam introduced pagan worship to Israel. He was the first to introduce pagan worship and ordained priests to pagan gods. He was bold and unashamed, and he promoted and introduced this idea of idolatry. He was not a great kind of guy. He reigned for 22 years as a man of deception. It was a tragic beginning to the northern kingdom. Their first king didn't follow after God. Their first king introduced idol worship. It didn't get off to a good start. Second king, uh, the second king of, of Israel was, was Nadab. And in 1 Kings 14.20 it says this, He, Jeroboam, reigned for 22 years and then rested with his fathers. And Nadab, his son, succeeded him as king. In 1 Kings 15. 25 and 26, it says this, Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the way of his father and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. So here we see the second king, Nadab, followed in his father's footsteps. He followed in his father's footsteps, sinning and leading Israel into sin, by participating in idol worship. He was not a great king. He was an evil king. This leads us to the third king, who is Bashah. And in 1 Kings 15, 27 to 29, and verses 33 to 34, it says this, Bashah, son of Ahah of the house of Iskar, plotted against him, and he struck, down, and he struck him down at Gibboneth, a Philistine town, while Nadab and all Israel were besieging it. Bashah killed Nadab in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, 
but destroyed them all, according to the word of the Lord given through his servant Aha, the Shilonite. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Bashah, son of Aha, became king of Israel in Tizra, and he reigned for 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. As I said, the northern, the northern kingdom rulers were bad, and some were worse than others. Bashah wasn't the worst of those, but he was a murderer. I mean, he murdered the king before him. He was not the kind of guy that you want your daughter to bring home to meet you. Uh, he, he wasn't those, that, that kind of guy that you'd be excited about having as part of your family. He was a wicked and murderous man, and he ruled Israel for 20, 24 years. It's a bleak picture, isn't it? It doesn't sound like a great place to live in Israel. It sounds like vacation in Israel, the vacation industry is declining because who would want to go there? It's, it's a pretty bleak picture. Let's move on to the fourth king. Elah is the fourth king over the, over the northern kingdom. And in 1 Kings 8, 16, 8 to 13, it says this. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, son of Bashah, became king of Israel. And he reigned in, in, in Tizra two years. Zimri, one of his officials who had, commanded, who had command of half his chariots, plotted against him. Elah was in, in Terza and at the time getting drunk in the home of Azra, a man in charge of the palace at Terza. Zimri came in, struck him down, and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. Then he succeeded him as king. As soon as he began to reign and was seated on the throne, he killed off Bashah's whole family. He did not spare a single male, whether relative or friend. So Zimri destroyed the whole family of Bashah in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken against Bashah through the prophet Jehu, because of all the sins of Bashah and all and his son Elah had committed and had caused Israel to commit. So they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. Elah took over for his dad Bashah, and he wasn't much better than his dad. Uh, he, he wasn't much better. He was a drunk and wicked man that was not well liked, and he was assassinated by Zimri, his chariot commander. And this fulfilled the prophecy from 1 Kings 14 that, that said that the house of Jeroboam would be destroyed because of their sin. Until this point, the house of Jeroboam was on the throne, and they had, they had taken over after the, the father had died or been killed. The son had taken over, and, and, and now we see Zimri in charge of half the chariots took matters into his own hand, and he killed Elah, and he became king. So Zimri was the fifth king over the northern kingdom in Israel. And it says in 1 Kings 16, 15 to 19, it says this, In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned in, in Terza seven days. The army was encamped near Gibboneth, a Philistine town. When the Israelites in the camp heard that Zimri had plotted against the king and murdered him, they proclaimed Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that very day there in the camp. Then Omri and all the Israelites with him withdrew from Gibboneth and laid siege to Terza. When Zimri saw the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the royal palace and set the palace on fire around him, so he died. Because of the sins he had committed, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in the sin he had committed and had caused Israel to commit. Zimri had a long rule, didn't he? Seven days. Seven days. I guess some could say he didn't, at least he didn't mess anything up too badly. Uh, but he, he lasted seven days, and then we see Omri, who was the commander of the army, said, you know what, he's not going to be king. 
I'm going to be king. And he was more popular, and he had the army behind him, and he just kind of took the throne from, from Zimri. And, and we see that as they went to get Zimri, he realized that it was not a good picture. And, and so he was, in, he was in the palace, and he set it on fire, and he killed himself. And it's interesting, even though he was not of the family of Jeroboam, you know, that's what it said in the, in the text, he, co- he continued in the way of the sins of Jeroboam. He continued to, to worship idol, uh, idol gods and pagan gods, and he didn't worship the one true God, and, and, and God took him off the throne uh, by way of Omri. Omri is the sixth king over the northern kingdom of Israel. I know by now you're thinking, when are we going to be done with this? Just hang on. Uh, you know, as we read through this, you can see in, the, in, in Judah, Asa is still the king. And you're thinking, man, if, if we were talking about Judah, we wouldn't have to talk about all these kings because Asa's been the king every time. Uh, but just hang with me here. Omri is the sixth king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 1 Kings 16, 23 to 26, in verse 28, it says this. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel. And he reigned 12 years, six of them in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria after Shemar, the name of the former owner of the hill. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all of those before him. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin, which he caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. Omri rested with his father, and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab, his son, succeeded him as king. Despite all the bloodshed, despite all the rebellion, despite all the idolatry and wickedness of the previous five kings, the writer makes a shocking statement about Omri here. Just when you, think, just when you thought things couldn't get any worse, Omri rises to power, and listen to this, it says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and sinned more than all of those before him not a great statement to be known, be known by. It's not a great statement to be your claim to fame. Uh, but because of, of, of the sick and, and, and sinful six kings that we just talked about, Israel has experienced six dark decades. They went from, from the, the height of Israel in, in David and Solomon's reign through these six kings into a very dark place, a very, very dark place. The reign of evil began in the hearts of the leaders on the throne, and it flowed down in the very core of the people of Israel. So the next king, right, the seventh king, seven is a great number in the Bible. It's a significant number, right? The seventh king is going to turn things around, right? Well, let's look. In 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33, we're introduced to the seventh king, Ahab, of Israel. And it says this, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So much for a hero, huh? Ahab is not a great guy. He, he, he is not a great guy. He, he's not coming to the rescue. It states that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. 
he again continued this, this practice of idol worship, and, and he did more evils in the eyes of, of any before him. And it was interesting, as we see him introduced, do you notice what happened that was different than any of the other six kings? We're introduced to who? His wife, Jezebel, right? We're introduced to his wife. No, nowhere before are we introduced to any of the king's wives. And, and as I was reading it, I thought, well, that's kind of significant, isn't it? We're introduced to Jezebel, and why would we be introduced to Jezebel? And so I was looking at some commentaries, and some commentators gave two reasons why they think the author of 1 Kings mentions Jezebel. Two important reasons. The first reason is this. She was the dominant partner in the marriage. She was the dominant partner in the marriage. She ruled the kingdom. She was the power behind the throne. Jezebel ruled her husband. She controlled the monarchy, and she governed the people of Israel. She was a very powerful lady, and Ahab was just her puppet, and she was pulling the strings. She was in control. She was making the decisions. She was in charge of the country. Uh, And so uh, that's an important realize that Jezebel is a very significant character in the history of Israel, and she's a very dominant personality. She, she, She wielded a lot of power in the kingdom. And, and some say that, that's a reason why she's mentioned. Uh, another reason why some say that she's mentioned is she was the one who initiated Baal worship. She was the one who initiated and introduced Baal worship. Jezebel came from Sidian, where Baal worship had long existed. When Ahab married Jezebel, she, re, she brought her religious heritage with her. She brought it along, the idolatrous worship of Baal. And Baal was worshipped as the god of rain and fertility. He was the god of rain and fertility. He's the one who controlled the seasons and the crops of the land. And so we see she introduced Baal, this god of rain and the seasons, the one who who controlled the crops. And you know what? She also introduced the worship of the goddess Asherah, the mother of Baal. And when Baal worship entered the kingdom of Israel, with its heathen practices and barbaric sacrifices, the wickedness in the land escalated. We are at rock bottom in Israel right now. And the purpose for going through all of those kings is just to kind of let you know that this is not a great time. This is a time of any time that needed a hero. Because it was dark. It was, it was a sinful nation. And the leaders were sinful. And, and God was not pleased with Israel. And so this, were, this was the days of Elijah. Not, not a pretty picture. And so now we see the prophet Elijah. We, we, we see the prophet Elijah. And during the period of this northern and southern kingdoms, because of the wickedness of many of the rulers and the sinfulness and the apostasy of the people, God sent various prophets to call both the leaders and the people to repentance. He had sent various prophets along the way to try to get them to, to repent of their ways and turn back to God. And being a prophet was not an easy task. It was not one of those things where, you know, you wanted to to volunteer right away to be a prophet because if you were going to be a prophet, you were going to be in harm's way. If you were going to be a prophet, you were going to be in the minority. If you were going to be a prophet, a lot of times you would have to be by yourself because the culture around you was so sinful and wicked. Being a prophet was not an easy calling. Most kings wanted nothing to do with God's messengers, disregarding their warnings and ignoring their rebukes. And now we're introduced to the prophet Elijah. J. Oswald Sanders writes this about Elijah. 
Elijah appeared at zero hour in Israel's history. Like a meteor, he flashed across the inky blackness of Israel's spiritual night. It was a dark, dark time spiritually in the nation of Israel. And we're introduced to Elijah in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, verse 1, and it says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. In this one verse, we're introduced to Elijah. He steps onto the stage during this dark time. And in this verse, we learn, uh, we can make some observations about Elijah, some important observations that tell us a little bit about Elijah. Uh, The first observation is this, is we're introduced to his name. His name is Elijah. You might say, well, yeah, we can read that. That says it right there, Pastor Jonathan. It says Elijah. But you know what? Uh, you know what Elijah's name means? And, and, and those in, in, in his day would know what the name Elijah meant. The name Elijah means, my God is Jehovah, or the Lord is God. That's what his name means. My God is Jehovah, the Lord is God. Ahab and Jezebel were in control of everything. And their God was Baal. But when Elijah burst onto the scene, his very name proclaimed to them this, I have one God, his name is Jehovah, and he is the one that I serve. Just just the mention of his name communicates that to them. Chuck Swindoll says of Elijah, the spiritual chasm between God and his people had reached its widest breadth. And Elijah stood alone in the gap. It was a dark time, and Elijah comes onto the scene, and and his very name just says, My God is Jehovah. And he says, And he is the one that I serve. He he has a powerful name, Elijah. And all of those uh, living in Israel knew exactly what his name meant. So that was his name. The second thing we learn is his land. Uh, His land. Where did he come from? Uh, the Tishbite refers to a, a, being a native of a certain town by the name of Tishba in Gilead. Now we can, locate, we can locate Gilead on the map. It was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It was not, uh, Gilead was not a sophisticated place. Uh, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I, liked, I like to joke that I'm from Millersburg, a small town without a stoplight, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And, and, but Gil, I mean, Tishba was in the middle of Gilead in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I mean, it, it was really in the middle of nowhere. It was a place of solitude and outdoor life, uh, a place where people would, would have been rugged and rough. They would have been muscular. They would have been tanned from working out in the sun, uh, it was not a place of polish or sophistication or diplomacy. But the town of Tishba is one of those places that the sand of times have completely hidden. We're not sure where it is. We're not sure where it is. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know what? Where you're from is not as important as where you're going. And as I was thinking about it, you know, we may not know where Elijah is from, but that's not important as where you're going. Because Elijah knew where he was going, and we're going to know shortly where he's going. And, and Elijah came out of this insignificant, out of this out-of-nowhere place to make a big contribution to God and became one of Israel's most famous heroes. And it started in the middle of nowhere. 
It started from the most un, un, unorthodox and unique place that no one would ever guess. That was where he was from. That was his land. And I think that's, I, I think that's important why God chose him. So that was his land. Finally, we learn of his style. We learn of his style. Because of where he came from, his manner would have borderlined on the rough and tough. Not, like, uh, not unlike many of the fiery characters that God chose to use all throughout history. You know, he chose the rough around the edges characters, didn't he? He, he chose the ones that maybe weren't the, the most intelligent, the most educated. He chose the, the rough and tumble to use to do amazing things. And right from the beginning of our introduction to Elijah, notice what he does. He gets in the king's face. He, he makes a beeline straight for the king, King Ahab and, 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 Je, and Jezebel, and he gets right in their face. Without, without a moment of hesitation, without no apparent fear or reluctance, Elijah stands before King Ahab and comes right to the point. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point. Onto this dark stage of Israel's history steps a prophet out of nowhere. And he goes and, and, he, and he approaches the king and, he, and he, he really challenges the king. He's without sophistication. He's without training. He's without any courtly managers, manners. He follows no protocol. He makes no introductions. He offers no appreciation or admiration for the king. He simply announces this. He gets in the king's face and he simply announces this. The Lord, the God of Israel, lives, and there isn't going to be dew or rain in the next few years except by my word. Elijah's a man on a mission. He's a man on a mission for the one true God. When all around him he sees the evidence of Baal worship and sin, and he's on a mission for the one true God. He goes to the king, and he says, you know what, there's not going to be rain or dew until I say and as you think about that, well, what's significant about that? I mean, besides, you need, you need rain to live, but, 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 but why does God choose with this message? Why, why does God send Elijah with this message? Remember, Baal is the god of rain, right? He's the god of crops, the crops and everything like that. And Elijah steps onto the scene. He says, I, I, I serve the one true God, Jehovah, and I'm here to tell you, Baal, the god of rain, he's lame. That's what he tells him. Baal, the god of rain, he's lame. You, you say that he controls the rain. You say that he controls the crops. You say that he blesses you and does all these things. I'm here to tell you, he's a phony. He's a phony. He's not the real deal. My God, Jehovah is the real deal. He controls the rain. Your God is lame. He gets in their face and tells them that right away. That's his style. His style is to the point. His style is... is, is He's rough and tumble, and he's not afraid of anyone because God is on his side. And he goes before the king and Jezebel, and he says, you guys are wrong. You guys have led this people astray in the worship of, of idolatrous gods, and you're going to pay the price. Your God is nothing but a phony. My God is the one true God. And without any rain, your crops will die. Your cattle will die, and people will die. It's a pretty significant statement. We think, well, that's kind of funny. You know, he gets before the king and says, you're not going to have any rain. It's a huge statement in this time period. Agriculture was their main way of, of, of making a living. 
and Baal was the god of rain. And so, so Elijah hits him right where it hurts. And he says, my God is the one true God. He's in control. You're not. Your God is not. You're living in sin. That's Elijah. That's what we get from this one verse that we're introduced in, in, in 1 Kings 17, 1, about Elijah. And as we unpack his, his, his life over the next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to look how God uses Elijah. But for this morning, as we close, let's look at some lasting lessons from Elijah's life that we see just in this one verse. And the first thing is this. God looks, God looks for special people at difficult times. God needed a special man. He needed a special man to shine his light into the darkness of those days. Uh, it, it wasn't going to take someone for the faint of heart. It, went, it needed a special man to step on to the stage with the courage to stand alone in the gap between a holy God and a sinful people and and point them back to God and encourage them to repent. Someone who lived out the truth of God and stood up for the truth of God. That was Elijah. That was Elijah in front of the most powerful couple in the world. He got in their face and said, "You're, you're serving the wrong God. My God is the true one true God. God looks for special people at difficult times. Second thing is this, God's methods are surprising. God's methods are surprising. God didn't raise up an army to destroy Ahab and Jezebel. He didn't send someone with a royal heritage to replace them. He didn't send some great orator to reason with them, someone who was highly educated. He sent a nobody from nowhere who was willing. Did you get that? He sent a nobody from nowhere who was willing. Others would have been better qualified or possessed superior talent and gifts, but God's in the business of taking the ordinary people and using them in extraordinary ways. God's methods are surprising, aren't they? Final, last thing is this that we learn from Elijah. God stands with us. God stands with us. Elijah wasn't standing alone before King Ahab and Jezebel. He might have felt like it. He might have felt like it was him against the world. But as he stood there, he knew that God was with him. He knew that even though it was him against the whole nation, God was with him. And when God's on your side, you're never in the minority. You're always in the majority. And, and that gave him the strength to do what God wanted to do. But with God standing with him and Elijah being, being obedient to God's call in his life, Elijah went from this, this underdog, this one versus a million, to a champion realizing that God was on his side, that he would not, he would not let him alone. He would, not, he would not let him fail. He would not disown him, that God was there to help him uh, fulfill this great call. Elijah's a pretty amazing guy. They needed a hero in Israel at this time. And you know what? I'm a big believer that in our time today, we need a hero too. We need some Elijahs. And the reason I shared the story of Katie Davis was because She's a modern-day Elijah. She's someone from, somewhere, someone from out of nowhere who just followed God, and God used her in amazing ways. A 22-year-old girl who's a mother of 14, who is feeding 400 kids, providing them uh, with, with education till, till they graduate from college, running an organization in Uganda, giving up everything that this world has to offer to serve God. God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Elijah was ordinary. 
He was just willing. He was just willing to follow God's call. And you know what? We need some more Elijahs. And you know what? There's some Elijahs sitting here today. There's some ordinary people sitting here today that God is calling to do extraordinary things. The choice is just up to them. The choice is up to you. The choice is up to me. Do I say yes and step out in faith realizing God is with me? Or do I live for myself? I was challenged this week by the story of Katie Davis and by the story of Elijah that we need, we need people. We need people to be heroes today. And heroes don't happen on a sports field. Heroes don't happen uh, in, in Hollywood or anything like that. Heroes happen when everyday ordinary people are serious about following God and sharing his love with other people wherever God places them and making a difference for eternity. Will you be an Elijah? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word and, and look into your word and, and, and be challenged by the life of this great man, Elijah. And Lord, as we unpack his life and, and, and walk through his life in the next few weeks, we'll realize that Elijah's not perfect. He has his faults, but, but Lord, he was willing. He was willing to be obedient and step out and follow after the call that you gave to his life. And Lord, you used an ordinary person to do an extraordinary thing. Lord, you specialize in that. Because if we're really honest, there's nothing great about each and every one of us in this room. We're all ordinary. But Lord, it's my hope and my prayer that even though we're all ordinary, that we'd want to do extraordinary things for you. Wherever you call us to, whether it's, it's Uganda like Katie or, or, or even here in Elizabethtown, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to be serious about following your calling and being obedient to you and living out our faith in a practical way so that others may see your love in action and hear about your love through our words. Father, our world needs heroes. And the good news, God, is you're in the business of making heroes. You're the only one that can. We need your help and your strength to transform us. We need your spirit to work in our hearts to get us to be obedient to your calling. But Lord, just like you used the life of Elijah in a big way in the life of Israel, you can use just one of our lives in a big way in our world today. We just need to be willing. Thank you for the reminder, God, that you are a great God, that, that never abandons us, that stands with us and can take the ordinary and make an extraordinary for your honor, for your glory, for your name, for your fame. In Jesus' name. Amen.